Angel, what, what are you doing? Data. Data. Data? Yeah, Gaia data. Um, you know, we have to plot. We have to do uh, statistics. Uh, uh, how Angel, how Angel, good is your pandas? Put, put down pandas. <laughs> I don't know what you did, but I think you broke pandas. I Probably I did. Ah, yeah, I know. We are getting into our 10th episode. <gasps> Tenth episode, that's a lot of minutes of us talking. Yeah, too, too much, perhaps. <laughs> okay, well, I should stop this and start again, perhaps. Okay, mm. one sec. Pom, 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 pom. Hello, I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. scientists. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to episode 10, da da! Yes, 10, well, we are getting there, so we are starting to accumulate episodes and trying to do it entertainment and nice, so mm -hmm. yoohoo! And I think we have some feedback. We do, we have feedback this time. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in feedback, because we're about to answer your questions, and I'm very excited because, as everyone would know, I love questions. She she really loves questions, yes. I, I really do, because questions are able to be answered. So let's answer some questions. Okay, go for it. So mm. our first bit of feedback is from Anthony, the very loyal follower of uh, The Scientist and myself. And Anthony talks that uh, we briefly talked about Jupiter once on Twitter. And I mentioned that it might be a, a brown dwarf, because it could have developed into a brown dwarf. And Anthony did some research, and it's too cold by far for fusion of any kind. So how does it qualify as a possible brown dwarf? Great question. Yes, it is. But at the end, it is, again, just trying to clarify which is the difference between a star, a planet, and a brown dwarf. Mm. The, the line is very fuzzy. In some way, you can actually find a continuum of mm -hmm. masses, starting from pebbles, of just sand in the space, small sizes, building into meteoroids and going into asteroids, mm -hmm. asteroids into dwarf planets, dwarf planets into planets, terrestrial and then gas giants planets, and then from there moving into brown dwarfs mm -hmm. and stars, and you never know exactly where you put the limit. Yeah, yeah. So... Should we confirm that Jupiter is a planet? Jupiter is a planet. Yes, it but it could have developed into a brown dwarf if it had gotten more stuff. Much more stuff. Much more stuff. Much more stuff. I should have checked the numbers from the top of my head. I think to remember it was around 13 times the mass of Jupiter. Okay. That you need to start burning the deuterium, which right. is the thing that some brown dwarfs are doing. And from burning deuterium from 13 Jupiter masses mm -hmm. till around 70. Okay. That is the limit where stars appears in the mm -hmm. sense that it is a limit where finally you can burn just hydrogen and you have a red dwarf star. There we go. So Jupiter's pretty far off from a brown dwarf then. Yeah, it B is. Bit too small. It is. It is, yeah. it is still a small, but it is big. 
mm. as we said, it yeah. is uh, quite big, which you compare with the standard kind of planet that mm. we have in the solar system. But we are finding many of these big planets also around other stars. At the beginning, these were the first planets to be found and to be discovered. And they were very atypical, because imagine finding something like Jupiter, but only needing three, four days to turn around their own star. Oh. So they're even very, very, very close to, yeah. to, to the parent star, much more closer than Mercury is from the Sun. Wow. Oh, yeah, the, the hot Jupiters. Exactly. That That's was, right. That was the name. So the hot Jupiters. So that was the first kind of planet. So that is why at the beginning they were not so completely sure <laughs> that they were planets or not. <laughs> anyway, I'm just talking about different kind of things at the moment. Maybe we should talk about exoplanets in, in another episode. Yes, definitely. We have a second question from Anthony as well. If Jupiter is indeed a brown dwarf, so let's assume that Jupiter is a brown dwarf. Not that it is, but we'll assume in this case. Does that mean we live in a binary system? Well, yes, it would have been that we live in a binary system, mm. although very probably the orbits of the planets, the rest of the planets around the sun or around the body center, which is the center of gravity between Jupiter and the sun, those orbits would have been a bit different, mm. probably unstable in the long term. Yeah. So perhaps we didn't have a stable solar system in the way we know now. Perhaps even life on Earth would have been not possible. Yeah, true. You know, it's really funny. Um, I'm not sure if we actually mentioned this in our Jupiter episode, but Jupiter doesn't technically orbit around the sun. Technically. Yeah, exactly. Because the barrier center of the orbit is about 80,000 kilometers from the surface of the sun. So technically, it doesn't orbit a point inside the sun, so it doesn't orbit the sun. I love that fact. It's so I funny. love that fact. It is exactly the same thing that happened with Pluto and Charon. Oh. Because Charon it is a very large satellite in comparison to Pluto. I thought it was about similar-ish size, but it's smaller though. No, it is a bit smaller. Charon mm. it is definitely a bit smaller than Pluto. So the body center, the center of gravity, it is a bit... Over, I don't remember the number, but it is mm. a bit over the surface of Pluto. Mm. I wonder then where the barrier center of the Moon and Earth system is then. Ah, well, it is inside the Earth. One would assume. It's I just wonder it, where it is inside the Moon. I don't, I don't remember exactly which uh, distance it is. Mm. It's still quite far because the Moon is also relatively large. It is. To like the it's planet. A, it's a quarter of the diameter of the Earth, about the same size as Australia mm -hmm. in, in size comparison, but uh, not as dense, so not as massive. Not as dense, not as massive as yeah. it is the, the Earth. Mm. There we go. There's a bit of a challenge for our listeners. Work out where the barrier center of the Earth-Moon system is mm, good and question. tell us how far away it is from the center of the Earth. Okay. Interesting. I'll do it as, as well. Like I'm going to go home and get on my notepad and work out the answer and let's see if we get our answers correct. Okay, I Google it. <laughs> You'll Google it. I'll I'll do the maths. Okay, good, yep. good, good. I like <laughs> I, I like this. <laughs> okay. Or well, we do have another question as well. Another a third question. question from Anthony. Great questions as well. I'm loving this, Anthony. Um, so I saw today on NASA Facebook video that they are exploring fission reactors for long distance probes, etc. Are there any reasons you can think of why NASA isn't harnessing the cosmic microwave background radiation? Oof. Mm. Well. How, how would you harness I, I don't know, but that? for sure, just you have to consider that uh, radiation, it is very, very, very low energy. Mm. 
very much moved into the microwave, radio wavelength. This kind of radiation, I don't think it will be able possible to to use it for a for propulsion or yeah, for like for that. something like that yeah. for, for sure. Yeah. So it will be much easier to get uh, well, and, it, and it in some way it is done to get the energy that we receive from the sun mm-hmm. in any kind of way of, of solar power of solar wind and you have also well not only the solar wind but the pressure of the solar wind moving the the famous uh, solar winds mm-hmm. that is also another system that have been thought and some way used for moving a spacecraft in our solar system yeah because you know microwaves they're good at heating our food but not so good at propelling our rockets but probably the energy that you have in a microwave it is even some few orders of magnitude higher than the energy that we can get from the cosmic background radiation. There you go. Your microwave in your kitchen is stronger than the cosmic microwave background radiation. <laughs> Radio astronomers know this very well because, well, we can't use our microwave if we are observing with radio at some few frequencies. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and there have been some op- interesting observations of, what was the name? Uh, there was a, a, funny, a funny name of... I don't remember, sorry, but it was a kind of... They were thought that it might be a new astronomical discovery mm-hmm. coming associated with that. And then someone, real, because it was a, a, a very strong burst of energy in radio wavelength, oh. and then someone realized that all those bursts were always happening at around 12.30. And they dig that, they noticed that it was someone using the microwave <laughs> they should not be using it. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Peraton? It was something like Peraton. Mm. So just don't use a microwave when you're looking at radio astronomy. No. Wow. And also keep pigeons away. Yes, yes. <laughs> very, very important because they can't confuse you. They can indeed. <laughs> okay, we have one last feedback question. This is from the Eld on Twitter. It's a bit of a more of a nerdy one. Given the astronomy nerding out... Is anyone on the podcast familiar with The Expanse? Have you heard of The Expanse? I love it. You love it? So you watch it? I love it. I have watched the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. The first two seasons. And I highly recommend it. And it's right now, the third season is there. The only thing that I have checked in the in Twitter in the last few days, just by chance, mm-hmm. because it was a conversation between some few friends. So I heard that um, they were going to cancel the, the next season. Yes. From sci-fi. Mm. Although Netflix is probably going to continue doing it. He's hoping. Because uh, a couple of weeks ago, my partner, Jamie, texted me out of the blue. It was like, go watch the first two episodes of The Expanse. You'll love it. It's a new TV show we're watching together. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. So I went to go watch the two episodes. And I like it. I like the idea of it that we've, you know, we've extended from Earth. We've got, we're colonizing Mars and the belt, as they say. Um but it's not really my sort of TV show. Yeah, the problem yeah. with The Expanse, particularly the first season, it is that they're introducing you all the characters, not only mm. the characters, but the kind of civilization yeah. that uh, the human race have achieved mm. in that particular moment and the problems that they are having, one with respect to other, the Martians, yeah. the Earth, uh, how, no, the, the Earth, how they, they were called the Terra. Terra? The, Terra, the okay. Terrans. Yeah. Um, because it is the, the Earth and the Moon. Mm, okay. and, and in the belt, 
but later the drama and the circumstances are building building it and then they don't have to explain some of the details and they mm. can go more into the action that is particularly in the second season when more things are happening what i like most of this uh, other spans of this in tv series it is that it is trying to be as much accurate as possible scientifically talking mm. so sometimes they have to move let's say in different orbits going into Jupiter and trying to to go to Europa but hidden from other people and what they are using it is just the celestial laws of mechanics mm. just to go from one satellite to the other to try to see to, to be unseen and, the, and undetected and it has some few of these uh, of these details okay that's really cool it, it's tried to be quite realistic although mm. it is science fiction and there are many things that well we don't have the technology, of course, yeah. and, and or, the, or the resources yet, but uh, give it a go mm. and, and let us know. Yeah, definitely. And um, the Eld has asked us to retweet the Expanse petition to get it back. So I'll be signing it. Will you be signing it, yes, Angel? Yes, of, of course, so definitely. We have retweeted that. So if you like The Expanse, or if you like the idea of The Expanse, go ahead and sign the petition. Let's see if we can try and get Netflix to get it back on. Because, as we can see, a lot of people do really like it. I know Jamie loves it. Mm. I fell asleep through most of it, to be honest, because I was very tired when he got me to watch it. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, particularly the first episodes, you have to see them with a kind of a different mind. Mm. It's, it, it is later speeding up. Yeah. And more things are happening and, and in different time scales. At the beginning, it is just one after the other after the other mm. and explaining almost, almost every single detail. Yeah. No, I think I think it is good for the parts that I was awake mm-hmm. <laughs> to watch. Okay, okay. But there we go. So go and sign the Expanse petition. We have retweeted it and hopefully we can get it back on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's all of our feedback. Thanks, guys, for bringing that to our attention. We do love all your questions. Definitely. Please continue doing that. Mm. But now it's time for What's Up? What's Up? What's Up? What's Up? Okay. I think I think a, a good what's up for today is just a, a little old star. Well, not so little, but it is old, called Arcturus. Arcturus or Alpha Botis. Yep, or for a shortened version, Alpha Boo. Alpha Boo. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. I have never realized about that. Alpha Boo. Alpha Boo. <laughs> boo. Okay, okay. Well, I was going to say that in Spanish it is Arturo. Oh, okay. Arturo. Arturo, like the King Arthur. Ah, yeah, there you go. I really thought when I was a kid, because that was the very first star that, that I identified by name when, when I was a kid. I already saw the seven brightest stars of the Big Dipper, mm-hmm. Ursa Major, but I didn't know the names of those stars. The first star that I knew the name was Arturo's. So it is a, a star that you can see from both the northern and the southern hemisphere. That's right. It's very, very north for us down here in Australia. But it's still visible. It's still visible, indeed, and nice and bright, too, hmm. which is quite nice. I've seen it the last few days when it hasn't been rainy, and it's been quite pretty. Nice and orange, because it is a red giant. A red giant star. Do you mm. know more or less how massive this star is? The m- mass of the star. The mass of Arcturus. Mm. You're going to get so, a surprise. Yes, so when we're talking about being massive, we're talking about how much mass there is, and it's about the same mass as the sun, just oh. a little bit more massive, but it's just bigger in terms of size. Yeah, it is around 25 times bigger 
mm. that, the, that the sun, although, as you said very well, it is around the same mass of the sun, mm. um, because that is much, much b- bigger, much larger. It is the brightness, it is around 170 times more luminous than the sun. Mm, which makes sense because it is larger. And so the more surface area to emit this light, it is brighter than our sun. Although the effective temperature of uh, Arcturus in the surface, mm-hmm. it is lower than that that we find in the sun. That's right. Because of the very large area, still is going to be much brighter ta- than the sun. That is what happens to red giant stars. And that is what the, the sun will become in some few, perhaps... Uh, two, three two billion and three, years. Three, yeah, three billion years, something like that. Mm. Arturus is thought that it has around um, seven S- something. Yeah. Seven-ish seven billion years old. Billion, billion years old, so yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's past its midlife crisis. Yeah, it is still... Yeah, it is just <laughs> going into the last Go, Going stages. into retirement. Into retirement, I think. yes. Mm. But it will not die as a supernova because no. it is as unlike... Star. It doesn't have the mass. It's not massive enough. So it will die just releasing the external layers to the to the space of the atmosphere to the space, and that will become a planetary nebula. And in the center, the core of this giant star will be a white dwarf, mm, which will be quite nice—a diamond in the sky, a as some sky, describe yeah. them. Mm-hmm. But uh, this star has many names, and it's also recognized in Aboriginal astronomy. Ah, yes, please. Yes, let's go to to talk a bit about that. So. To the Borong people, which is a part of the Wagaya language group, which is a group down in northwestern Victoria, they actually call this star Marpian Kuruk. My throat had a little bit then. <laughs> I've got a bit of a cold here, sorry guys. But Marpian Kuruk is the, the name of Arcturus in their language. And this star, its position actually signifies when to go looking for a certain food. Right? It, it, when it's due north after sunset... Marpian Kuruk tells us, or tells the Borong people, that the bitter is around. And bitter is the very scrumptious, delicious, sweet, succulent baby wood ants. Ah. Mm. Okay. Sounds yummy, doesn't it? Well, yes. You say that, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so it tells us when it's due north in the sky, that is when you can find the bitter. And once it's left the sky... That is telling us that the warm weather will be coming in. And so summer is coming in after Arcturus has gone from the nighttime sky. Yeah, because uh, here in Australia, on the southern hemisphere, mm. it is autumn or almost a winter mm. star. So yes. it's when majoritarily it is seen. It is the other way around in the northern hemisphere, of course. Mm. Yeah, so that is another name for Arcturus. Mapian Kurek in the Burong language. Okay, so f- what is exactly happening this what is the moment in which we can see more or less Arcturus in halfway through the sky so it's usually I think it's around June, June. July when yeah. it's due north yeah just after sunset that's uh, that's the important part when it's just after sunset after sunset I will, I will say that it was something yeah. like that around June mm. late June beginning of July something like that yes. yeah so that's when you can find this ant larvae to eat mm-hmm. and then when Arcturus is just going West. Mm-hmm. That's around For October. Setting, that will be, yes, September, October, meaning mm. that uh, the, the good then, weather is coming. That's there. right. And all the all the ants are gone. Or at least the ants will still be there. They just won't be as sweet oh, okay. as they would have been. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there you go. How to find Food 101 using the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and how to learn also to guide you with the stars because that is one of the first as i said it is one of the first stars that you are able to recognize in the sky using mm. the big dipper of course from the southern hemisphere it is not that easy because you can't see all the big dipper depending where you are depending where you are from i know from sydney you can see the butt of you big can dipper. see six <laughs> of the seven you can't see the northern yep but you can see six and you can see the, definitely the three that are pointing to Arturus, mm -hmm. you can see them from, from this latitude. There you go. That's to keep an eye out for it. Good. So, okay, well, um, let's go to move into our main topic for today, for our 10th episode. And we are going to be talking about Gaia. Mm. The second data release of Gaia was released, what, a week ago or so? Um, so the second data release of Gaia was released on the 25th of April, so it's oh, already okay. uh, some few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And they've been the same day, I think, that the new Avengers movie was also released. <laughs> Coincidence? I don't know. Maybe? I don't Maybe know. not? <laughs> we can talk a bit about Gaia. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the satellite? The satellite, well, it's part of the European Space Agency, mm. and it's designed for astrometry. Not astronomy, astrometry, which is measuring the positions and distances of stars with a very, very high precision, which is what's really exciting about this data release. We now have the very high precision of the positions, the parallax, the proper motions of how many stars? What? Billions? Billions. Billions. Oh billions. My gosh. We are moving into billions. So billions. The, the second data release of Gaia has the data of 1.7 billion stars. Whoa, that, that's a lot of stars. Yeah, plenty, plenty of stars. Yes. And, that's, and that's just in the Milky Way? Not all of them. Oh, the okay. huge majority of them, they are in the Milky Way. Yep. But Gaia is targeting all the sky. So this is a kind of a small satellite in some ways, mm -hmm. a space telescope, special because of the way it is serving and just scanning all, all the sky, the northern and the southern, all the sky together. It is not only targeting the stars that we see in our Milky Way, although that is the main aim of Gaia, mm. as you well, very well said, doing the astrometry, meaning the position, a very accurate positions and velocities of stars in our Milky Way. But if there is something point-like, like, well, other stars in nearby galaxies in the large mm -hmm. magnetic clouds or globular clusters or even quasars, oh. then you can get those two in the in the data release from Gaia. Okay, that's really interesting. So there's it's just looking at a lot, a lot of stuff out in the sky, just giving us all of the details. Yep, everything, everything is, is just targeting Gaia. So you mentioned the astrometry. Um, Gaia has the three main instruments. One of them, of course, it is for doing this, for doing astrometry. Mm -hmm. And astrometry, it is the way we measure very accurately the position in the sky that for astronomy it is the right ascension and the declination and I always like to say or to compare those with the longitude and the latitude That's right. on the earth. So it's basically just the latitude and longitude on earth just projected into the sky. Exactly. So yep. the longitude in the sky will be the right ascension and it has 24 hours mm -hmm. in a step of degrees because it is the time that the earth needs to complete a rotation. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> and, and it is very <laughs> convenient because right ascension is in some way a clock in the sky. 
Oh, we can talk about that in another moment. Okay. But anyway, and the other one, it is the declination. That is the same that the latitude in, 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 the, in the Earth. And that is going from minus 90 to 90 degrees. So that is exactly mm. the same. Exactly the same. Really yeah. convenient. So if we want, really want to know exactly the position of a city over the map, well, you go and get the position. You have all the coordinates, very accurate coordinates, using not only Google Maps or whatever, your GPS mm. system. But for the sky, we are trying to do the same with the stars. But with a little problem, because the stars move. That's right. So <laughs> the stars are moving, so we need to well, look at what they're doing. The stars move, uh, we are moving, everything is moving. So that is the very tricky part of really getting the position of stars in the sky. And that is what astrometry try to do. There is an extra thing that the stars are moving in the three-dimensional space, but we can only see two of them at the projection in the sky. So we see how they are moving in right ascension and declination in this kind of what we call the proper motion, which mm. is a combination of these two values of how it is moving the star in one direction and on the other direction. And then we also need to understand much better how the star is moving in the third dimension, in, in that that we don't see projected, yes. which we can measure with the velocity of a spectra. Now, I've just found this really fun picture here about the second data release of Gaia. And it just has a, a whole lot of numbers on it for all of the objects that they've found and what they've actually found. So they've found the position and brightness on the sky for 1,692,919,135 objects. 1.7 billion. Be yeah. Because as an yeah. astronomer, I'm not going to memorize this. No way. Number. No way. Way too many numbers for us to remember. Uh, they've got the surface temperature of about... 160 million stars. Uh, let me let me one moment say something else because okay. no because it, it will be it will be much better to understand because we are talking about astrometry mm -hmm. and we are talking also about uh, radial movement yep. in a moment. But there is another instrument that Gaia has, ah. which is the photometric instrument, Ooh, and which is, is what's getting exactly, the data for that. That is the data that is getting. Basically, there are just two different channels of two different filters: the blue and the red. Mm. That is that is all. And if you have more uh, emission coming in the blue, then you have a blue star, meaning it is a hottest star. Yep. If you have a red, more emission coming from in the red filter, then you have more a red star, cold star, for example, Arcturus. Mm. And that is the way we they can determine in some first approach the effective temperature of many of the stars. That's right. And by knowing the temperature, we can look at the color of stars as well. And what's really interesting is that they've found there's about 1.383 billion stars that are red in color and 1.381 or almost two stars that, or billion stars that are in blue color. So they're slightly more red than blue, which is interesting. Half and half. Basically half and half. Half and half. Yeah. With, with the uncertainties, half and half. Basically, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So that's, that's pretty cool. That half of the stars are red, half the stars are blue. With uh, that color map, mm. or color distinguish of, of the stars, and the position of the stars, ESA and, and the engineers and scientists, they have created a very nice and massive full sky panorama or image of the sky. Yes. That it is made of points. It's made of points, although at the end they have to say, okay, we can do all the points, so we have to average 
little regions of the sky. Mm. We have more red stars here, then it is red, it is more blue, well, blue if there is no many stars, it is more black because it's empty. So that it is a very interesting image that I recommend everyone to have a look to. Mm, it's very pretty. Is that? I think it was an astronomy picture of the day, actually. Yeah, it was because it had mm. been the main thing that had been presented to the community, and not only to the community, to the general public and to the media, that very nice image. There have been some few of similar images in the past. Many of us have been using from different uh, presentations and so on just to mm. explain how the Milky Way is. But that is quite interesting and quite new and very appealing. So it's very nice to the eye. Mm, mm. That is not the same for many of the data coming from the Gaia spacecraft. Yes. <laughs> but you know what? Not only is it looking at stars, as we mentioned, it's also found almost 15, well, just, on, just over 14,000 solar system objects. So that could include asteroids, comets, planets, yeah, other yeah. things in the solar system. And they're using all those data to try to quantify much better the orbits of all those minor bodies of the solar system. Mm. They expect to get many more than the 40,000 objects in the coming release because the, uh, Gaia is still observing. Mm -hmm. So this data release, it is only considering all the observations made between the 25th of July 2014 and the 23rd of May 2016. Yes. And we are expecting that at least for the next two years or three, Gaia will continue taking more data. They're hoping to get into the 7 to 10 billion Ooh. stars in the Milky Way. I just got chills. Yes, well, chill. well it is roughly 1% of all the Milky Way. Mm. <laughs> When you put it that way, it's less exciting. <laughs> Come on. The 1% of the Milky Way? That, that's a pretty big number, I must say. Since that our, our radio, our first radio signals have barely reached a tiny little pebble of the Milky Way anyway. So I guess 1% is a very big percentage. It is a big, it is a lot, yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. And another one last number here. 550,000 variable sources. Of course. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, well, these are just uh, stars, mainly stars, but not necessarily, that are changing periodically their luminosities. Right. And that is, again, using the instrument that I told you before, the, the photometry. You know, it mm -hmm. is, you've seen how sometimes a star is a bit brighter and sometimes a bit fainter, and then, then you have a variable star. The majority of those sources are going to be variable stars. Right. There we go. That's pretty cool. Good. Besides that, um, you asked me before about um, the stars in the Milky Way. I really would like to emphasize that it is not only observing the stars in mm. the Milky Way, mm -hmm. but also plenty of stars in globular clusters Okay. around the center of the Milky Way, around the okay. Milky Way. So Would you say that globular clusters are still part of the Milky Way? Oh, yes, they yeah? are. Okay, yeah, they, cool. they are, because when you dissect a galaxy, you will say, okay, we have a galaxy here like the Milky Way, a spiral galaxy. Mm -hmm. Then you have the bulge in the center, yep. the spiral disks, mm -hmm. where the majority of the thing and the action is happening, the yep. gas, the formation of a star, supernova, whatever. And then you have the halo. Mm. In the halo, you have the, ma the majority of the dark matter that we don't know what it is. And in the, the, in the halo, it is where the globular clusters are moving. Yes. And not only the globular clusters, 
but also what we have been discovering in the last decade or so, the stellar streams, mm. satellites, small galaxies that have been eaten and destroyed by the Milky Way and are still moving in there. So we find rivers of stars that move in perpendicularly sometimes to the disk of the Milky Way. So mm. it is much more complex and wider than what we might think. Yep. Of course, the main part for us of the Milky Way, it is a spiral disk. Yes. That is what we see, the projection of that, that we see in the sky, it is that banner that is just crossing the sky. Very beautiful to see. Very beautiful. Particularly now in, in when we are going into the winter. Indeed, indeed. In, in, in the southern hemisphere. Of yes. Course, winter in the southern hemisphere. That's right. Wow. So what about stars and other galaxies? Ah, yeah, sorry. I was talking also about that. Mm. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. So not only the globular clusters, so some few galaxies, a small dwarf galaxies around the Milky Way have been also observed in, in detail just because there is, Gaia is scanning the, the sky mm -hmm. and it is able to resolve sun stars. Mainly in the Magellanic clouds, yep, many of sense. them in the Magellan, in the two Magellanic clouds that we can only see from the southern hemisphere, but also in twelve dwarf uh, satellites of the Milky Way that are a bit farther away, oh. and that is very interesting because in the moment that the Gaia data release happened, many scientists, many astronomers, they already had. Some scripts and some Python, let's say Python or whatever code, <laughs> really just for download the data in some way because you can't actually download the data for 1.7 billion of stars. Mm. But in some way, do some query and download the data that you want, plot those data and have even the draft paper almost ready to go. And in one a week, in two weeks, many papers have been coming from the data release to of Gaia, mm. because people were really crazy <laughs> for getting all, all, all these numbers. Yeah, I remember seeing on Twitter how many people were just putting out impatient GIFs, just waiting for Gaia to come along. Two hours later, still waiting for Gaia to be released, still waiting for Gaia to be released. I found it hilarious. I was just sitting there with popcorn, just reading my Twitter feed. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> it was quite fun. But there are many of these papers and studies that have been happening but uh, I particularly remember one that is uh, relating this uh, da the data of the dwarf galaxies around the Milky Way mm -hmm. because they are more or less all moving in a kind of a plane, which okay. is very interesting hmm. for constraining the theory of the formation of the Milky Way. Yes. And there are some few, not controversy, just controversy or debate between different groups of astronomers. One that is saying, well, the standard model with uh, dark matter and so on is not able to reproduce that. And that have been also observing a couple of other galaxies, including the Milky Way and Centaurus A. Mm. And some other people that say, well, it doesn't matter, it's fine, everything works. It is just because simulations... Uh, that we have now cosmological simulations that are trying to find Milky Way analogs, objects that are like the Milky Way at the moment, it is almost impossible to find that all the satellites or the majority of the satellites about that galaxy are in a plane. Mm. They are more in a kind of a random distribution around that galaxy. Yeah. Of course, I'm talking a bit about this because that is a bit about my topic or research <laughs> and that is why I paid a bit more attention. Um, but many people, as you very well said, were really looking forward to get all this data from Gaia mm. for many different kind of 
research from exactly. solar system for galactic archaeology. Galactic archaeoastronomy. For galactic archaeology. Archaeology. For right. galactic archaeology. That sounds cool. Uh, it sounds good. That is <laughs> that is what uh, the Gala team is doing. Yes. Which is one of the surveys that we are conducting here at the Anglo Australian Telescope. Mm. And one of my favorite lectures is working on that too. Shout out to Sarah Martel. Ah uh, well, because <laughs> she is one of the PIs of the Gala survey. Exactly. And exactly. But now let's go to do a bit of publicity of the Gala survey. Exactly the week before the data release of Gaia, Gala also released the data that they have till, till that moment. Mm. Because in some way, Gala, that uses the Anglo-Australian Telescope and a very new instrument that we call Hermes, it is a spectrograph that has very high resolution for stars to try to not only understand the chemical composition of the stars and do what they call the chemical tagging mm-hmm. in the way that... Uh, it is assumed that stars that have almost the same chemical composition should have been formed at this in the same place and in the same way. Yep. But also the 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 third direction of the movement, because with a very high resolution spectrum, you can measure the movement of the star in the direction that we don't see. In the so pe- they can measure the shift? It is the shift, yeah. using the shift of the mission lines. Mm-hmm. It is the same trick that is used for finding exoplanets using this method of yep. the radial velocity. The same trick that at the end we use for knowing at which distance a galaxy is using the rep shift mm-hmm. of a particular em- emission or absorption feature in the spectrum. It is the, it is the same technique, but with very high resolution. Yep. So Gala, the Gala data are really providing extra value to the Gaia data in the sense that they are refining very well the chemical composition of many of these stars, around 300,000 stars that they have already released. So bad? And also the radial velocity mm-hmm. that uh, these stars are moving. That is something that Gaia is able to do, but doesn't have the high resolution mode to really do it with very high precision. Wow, that's really interesting that we can have so much data about, so, so much data, really. So, so much data. Uh, about all of these stars. It's amazing So much, how much we can actually do in astronomy and how much we do in astronomy. Well, uh, for sure, digging this data, that is going to be a job for, I'm not going to say years, I'm going to say decades. Yeah. There's plenty of information there. Where are we going to store it all? Well, that is the problem for Isa. <laughs> I don't care about that. <laughs> Well, th- there is something else that uh, I would like to, to say because we mentioned also the way of doing the astrometry, mm-hmm. but we didn't mention that much about how Gaia is able to estimate the distances to a stars. Right. Yes. And that is important. That is very important because distance to stars, like we, we need that so we can you know, map our universe and know more about these stars. So how does it find the distances? Using the parallax. That you mentioned quickly ah. at the beginning of mm-hmm. talking about Gaia, but perhaps it is convenient that we explain that a little bit. Yes, probably a good idea. So parallax is the parallax angle. One second. Parallax is not the bad guy of uh, Green Lantern. <laughs> this is, we're talking about the scientific parallax here. Yeah. 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 So it is not the machine I had in my old job. <laughs> But it is a measurement of the stars. So parallax angle, you can you can measure parallax angle 
within your own home, not of stars, but like you can you can see this parallax thing happening. If you put a finger out in front of you and close one eye and measure the position of your finger from the background and then you go close the other eye, your finger has moved relative to the background uh, that your finger is in front of. And so by measuring that distance and that angle, you can actually work out how far away your finger is relative to the background stars. And I took a photo of Christine <laughs> while she was explaining very nicely how she was actually doing it. <laughs> I will tweet that later. Excellent. So um, so if you can match my facial expression correct, you will be able to work out parallax of your finger, right? So you just measure... So in this case, both of my eyes, my left and my right eye, could be the position of the Earth on either side of the sun. Exactly. That right? is the big thing here. Yes. So because we know the distance between the sun and the Earth, so we know the distance between both positions of where the Earth would be on either side of the sun, mm-hmm. and if we know the angle, the relative position, we can work out the angle of this star relative to the background stars, we can then work out how far away it is using basic trigonometry. Using trigonometry. That is that is the good thing about that. Yeah. Stay in school, kids. Pythagoras is your best friend. It is well, for astronomy, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it's your friend. Pythagoras <laughs> is your friend for this. Well, it is so important in astronomy, the definition of parallax and all of this, that the real unit of distance as we use, it is not the light year. It's mm. usually for the public, we, we will say light years and whatever. It sounds a bit fancier. But the unit that we always use scientifically, it is the parsec. That's right, which is a parallax angle of one arc second. Exactly. So, which is about 3.4, 3. 3.6. 3.27. 3.27. I was uh, close-ish. You're <laughs> close, close enough. 3.27 light years. Um, so, yes, most of our measurements are in, in parsecs. parsecs. In parsecs, yes. So that is also something that Gaia is doing. As it is measuring the position, observing the same position of the sky many times throughout all the year, it is able not only to put the two points that from the creating the two eyes that we have, the two positions of the Earth in the extreme parts of the, of the sun six months later, mm. but some few more points around just uh, drawing the kind of ellipses that is doing that that star is... It's slightly changing depending on the position of the Earth with respect to the Sun. And with that, it is a much more accurate way of measuring the distance yeah. to stars. My question now it is, as everything is moving, the Earth is moving around the Sun, the Sun is moving around the galaxy, all the stars we see, although they seem that they're already always in the same place, they are actually moving a lot, how can we be sure exactly the positions how can we know with very accurate determination how they are in the sky, the positioning of the stars in the sky? Don't we just keep measuring them and measure the changes? Well, that, but we have to try to find something that is more absolute. Right. Well, here it is when quasars are oh. coming into play. Ooh, I like quasars. They're because fun. quasars that are the core of very young galaxies, some of them some few billion light years away mm-hmm. from us, they are hosting a supermassive black hole and emitting a lot of light. They are point-like sources in when we see with optical light with our eyes. I think we should clarify something first. The black hole is emitting light? Yes. But don't... Pe- isn't 
I'm a black hole meant to like a light can't escape from a black hole. So you, why is it emitting light? Well, because there is an accretion disk around the black hole that is very hot, and also sometimes because of the circumstances that that happening inside the in in, the, in that disk, uh, it is emitting a lot of light perpendicular to the disk. Yeah, and that is sometimes what we see. But mainly when we are talking about the supermassive black hole emitting light, it is not the supermassive black hole itself. It is what is happening around the supermassive black hole. That's right. So just wanted to clarify that for some people out there. Thank you for that. <laughs> anyway, these objects are so far away and the, their sizes are so tiny. The sizes of these quasars are some few parsecs. Let's go to say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> parsecs. Only few parsecs. It doesn't matter. We can say some few light years. And they are mainly in the same position, almost in the same position now, five years later, mm. ten years later, or even a century later. You can consider that they are not moving at all. In ten years, nothing in comparison with all the things that are happening in, in the cosmos and with the scales of the universe. Right. So we can compare the nearby stars' positions with the positions of the quasars. Yeah. So they have used uh, around half a million quasars. Oh, wow to actually estimate the real positions of the stars in the sky and how these stars are moving with, uh, with, with, with respect to the different years and how mm. to calculate the distance to these stars measuring with precision the parallax. So, so maybe we could use quasars for UPS systems, universal positioning systems we could we could yes we could if we were able to have something that is able to observe distant quasars mm. and, and by ups i mean in terms of gps but universe instead of global yeah, yeah just no. to clarify you clarify <laughs> that very well that, that is a way for example of getting a better understanding if if, if if in any moment in the future we are able to travel around our galaxy mm. or even in in the local galaxies using distant quasars will help. Indeed. Good. Well, that was a that was a lot to go through. I mean, I feel like we've been through the entire data release already. Okay, well, I still <laughs> have many more notes here, but <laughs> okay, well, we can leave it for another moment. That's right. So there we go, our big episode 10. Wow. That, that's at least 300 minutes of us talking. Yes, well, we love talking. We do. And I hope you guys enjoy us talking too. <laughs> Please do. Please do. And thank you again to Anthony and the Eld for sending in your feedback. Um, if you have any other questions, anyone, please send them through. You can send them through on our Facebook, The Scientist, um, on Twitter, also The Scientist, and to our email address, thescientist at gmail.com. For this episode, don't forget that we have been asking you your feedback about what do you think about the spans, the TV series. That yes. I really like it. And the other one, if, if you are able to get what is the position of the body center of the moon-earth system, or I should have said the earth-moon system. <laughs> <laughs> yes, send us your answers and we'll see who is correct. I'll go home after this and I'll be writing down my answer too. Let's see if we can uh, work it all out together. Just to let you know, our next episode, episode 11, can't be in two weeks. No, because Angel is going away doing many, many awesome things next week. And I turn 21 next week. And I didn't know that. <laughs> I Happy do birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. 
Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so I will be turning 21 next week on the 22nd of May. So, well, not quite next week, but week soon. Um, and I'll also be away because it's Reconciliation Week the week after that. So I'm very busy doing Aboriginal stuff. So we just, we just really can't record another episode for two weeks' time from now. So it will be in three weeks' time. So the, the episode 11, instead of releasing it on the 31st of May, this should be, it will be the 7th of July. But don't worry. June. Oh, 7th of June. Will be the 7th of June. Yes. Sorry, the 7th of <laughs> this June. This is all the month in between May and July. Ah, uh, yeah. But don't worry, because uh, we will be back the following week. Yes, we'll make it up to you by giving you two episodes in a row, week after week. But then... That will be the end of our series, our first series. We will be coming back, though. Yeah, because after that, I will be traveling to Europe for a month and a half, and I think it will be not very easy to record. Mm. And I have exams. I'll be finishing my degree, you With, know, those normal things. And that is much more important than yes. anything else, <laughs> as I have been telling her many, many, many times. So we will be back to our second season uh, at the beginning of August. I yes. think, something like that. Just in time for National Science Week. Yeah, that is going to be busy as usual. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. And um, I hope you enjoyed all our episodes. And we'll see you in three weeks. See you in three weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.